Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 256 of Forgotten Classics, More of the People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. And rarely will we see a more perilous scene. Maybe. Anyway, first, let's talk about the podcast highlight for the week. Continuing my trend of reminding you of podcasts that I've mentioned before, let's talk about Decoder Ring Theater. Now, I have mentioned this several times, I feel, if not, I should have, because of Blackjack Justice. Decoder Ring Theater does audio drama, but it's original audio drama, but it's done in old style. So Blackjack Justice is about (laughs) Blackjack Justice and his partner, girl detective Trixie Dixon. It's wonderful. And it's done old style. You love it. They have another better known, I feel, and longer running audio drama called Red Panda Adventures. And this is about a superhero, the Red Panda, And his sidekick, a female sidekick, the flying squirrel, who sounds a little hard-boiled, who in real life is, of course, a rich playboy and his chauffeur, Kit. Now, I've never really gotten into Red Panda Adventures, I think because I was so taken with Blackjack Justice that it was just different enough that I just didn't care that much. And also the superhero was not as interesting to me as the noirish style hard-boiled detective. But I've listened to all of Blackjack Justice. I've listened to a few of them more than once. And I was really longing for good audio drama. So I said, you know what? Maybe it's time, as Dawn in The Rosie Project, one of my favorite new books, says, to reboot my brain and look at it differently. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to listen to several and I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to listen. And that was when I was able to see the charm of it. It's old school, like Blackjack Justice, in the way of the audio dramas when you would be listening on the radio. Okay, I'm not old enough to have done that, but I've seen plenty of movies about people who've done it. So we all know, right? So you get that adventure, you get some of the predictability, you get some of the corniness, which is played just right. And it's an entertaining drama slash comedy. Also, you start to see a relationship forming between Kit and the Red Panda, which of course we're interested in as an overarching theme. Really well done, just like Blackjack Justice. So if you have not listened to those or the others, Go give Dakota Ring Theater a try. Now let's get back to our own drama from times past, The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. When last we saw our brave party of adventurers, they had gotten in, they seemed to be in everyone's confidence, with Juana the Shepherdess as a goddess, and Otter as a demigod, or maybe he's a god, I can't really tell, And Otter has just made a key mistake by by having the priests throw all the rubies into some place they can't find them. Now, of course, this wasn't Otter's intention, but, you know, he's just ever thinking of the moment. As much as I love Otter, we have to say he's got a more basic, straightforward point of view (laughs) than a lot of people. So we launch straight ahead into adventure. Because now, the priests are going to present Juana and Otter to the people. What kind of weird rituals does this mean, right? Oh, let's find out. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 22. The Temple of Jal In considerable agitation of mind, Leonard bid goodbye to Juana, promising to return soon, and went to visit the settlement men, whom he had not seen since the previous evening. 
He found them in good case enough, so far as their material comfort was concerned, for they were well supplied with food and warmly lodged. So much could not be said, however, of their mental state, for they were terrified by the multitude of solemn priests and warriors who watched them as cats watch mice. Crouching round him dejectedly, they implored Leonard not to leave them, saying that they expected to be murdered every minute. He pacified them as well as he could, and left them with the assurance that he would return presently, having first reminded them that the lives of all depended upon the maintenance of the delusion as to the divinity of Otter and the Shepherdess. The remainder of that day passed heavily enough. After the first excitement of their strange position had gone by, a reaction set in, and everybody was much depressed. As the hours drew on, the mist, which had lifted a little about ten o'clock, closed in very densely, throwing the ill-lighted chamber where they sat into a deep gloom. In such an atmosphere conversation languished. Indeed, at times it died altogether, and the only sound to be heard was that of the monotonous voices of the priests without the curtains, as they muttered prayers unceasingly. At length Leonard could bear it no longer, but rose, declaring that he was going out to see whatever might be seen. Juana tried faintly to dissuade him, and Otter wished to come too, which was impossible. The end of it was that he went alone. First he revisited the settlement men and tried to cheer them, and sadly did they need cheering. Then he passed to the great gates of the palace yard and looked through them. The mist had lifted a little, and about a hundred paces away he could perceive the doors of the temple, on either side of which rose the cyclopean walls fifty feet or more in height. It was obvious that here preparations for some ceremony were in progress, and on a large scale, for immense crowds of people were gathered about the doors, through which bodies of priests and armed men passed continually. More he could not learn for the gates of the palace yard were barred and guarded, and the soldiers would not let him through. He stood by them watching till sunset, then returning to the others, he told them what he had seen. Another hour passed, and suddenly the curtains were drawn aside and a body of priests entered, twelve in number, bearing large candles of fat in their hands, and headed by their chief, Nam. Prostrating themselves before Juana and Otter, they remained plunged in silence. "'Speak on,' said Juana at length. "'We come, O mother and O snake,' said the priest Nam, "'to lead you to the temple that the people may look upon their gods.' "'It is well, lead on,' Juana answered. First, you must be robed, mother,' said Nam, "'for without the temple none may look upon your divinity save your priests alone.' Rising as he spoke, he produced a black dress from a grass bag which was carried by an attendant. This dress was very curious. It fastened in front with buttons of horn, and either was, or seemed to be, woven in a single piece from the softest hair of black-fleeced goats. Moreover, it had sleeves just long enough to leave the hands of the wearer visible, and beneath its peaked cap was a sort of mask with three slits, two for the eyes and one for the mouth. Juana retired to put on this hideous garment over her white robe, and reappeared presently looking like the black ghost of a medieval monk. Then the priests gave her two flowers, a red lily and a white, to be held in either hand, and it appeared that her equipment was complete. Next they came to Otter, and bound a scarlet fringe of hair about his forehead in such fashion that the fringe hid his eyes, at the same time placing in his hand a scepter of ivory, apparently of very ancient workmanship, and fastened in the shape of a snake standing on its tail. "'All is prepared,' said Nam. "'Lead on,' answered Juana again. "'But let our servants come with us, both those here and those without, save the woman only, who stays to make ready our return.' Juana spoke thus because Soa had announced her wish to be left behind when they went to the temple. Juana had consulted Leonard on the subject, who gave it as his opinion that Soa had good reasons of her own for making this request. 
Also, he pointed out that in case of disturbance, she could scarcely help them, and might possibly prove an encumbrance. They wait, answered Nam. All is prepared for them also. And as he spoke, a sardonic smile flickered on his withered countenance that made Leonard feel very uncomfortable. What was prepared, he wondered. They passed through the curtains into the courtyard where soldiers clad in goatskin cloaks waited with two litters. Here also were the settlement men, armed, but in an extremity of fear, for they were guarded by about fifty of the great people, also armed. Juana and Otter entered the litters, behind which Leonard formed up his little band, going in front of it himself with Francisco, both of them having rifles in their hands and revolvers at their girdles, of which no attempt was made to deprive them, for none knew their use. Then they started, surrounded by the bare-breasted priests who chanted and waved torches as they walked, and preceded and followed by the grim files of tall soldiers, on whose spears the torchlight flashed ominously. As they came, the gates of the palace yard were opened. They passed them, and across the space beyond, until they reached the doors of the temple which were thrown wide before them. Here Juana and Otter descended from the litters, and all the torches were extinguished, leaving them in darkness. Leonard felt his hand seized, and was led along he knew not where, for the misty gloom was intense. He could scarcely see the face even of the priest who conducted them, but from the sounds he gathered that all their party were being guided in a similar fashion. Once or twice also he heard the voice of a settlement man speaking in accents of fear or complaint, but such demonstrations were followed quickly by the sound of a heavy blow dealt, no doubt by the priest or soldier in charge of that individual. Evidently it was expected that all should be silent. Presently Leonard became aware that they had left the open space across which they were walking, for the air grew close and their footsteps rang hollow on the rocky floor. I believe we are in a tunnel, whispered Francisco. Silence, dog, hissed a priest in his ear. Silence, this place is holy. They did not understand the meaning of the words at the moment, but the tone in which they were spoken made their purport sufficiently clear. Leonard took the hint, and at the same time clutched his rifle more tightly. He began to be afraid for their safety. Whither were they being led? To a dungeon? Well, they would soon know, and at the worst it was not probable that these barbarians would harm Juana. They followed the tunnel or passage for about a hundred and fifty paces. At first it sloped downwards, then the floor became level till at length they began to ascend a stair. There were sixty-one stone steps in this stairway, for Leonard counted them, each about ten inches high, and when all were climbed they advanced eleven paces along a tunnel that echoed strangely to their steps, and was so low that they must bend their heads to pass it. Emerging from this tunnel through a narrow opening, they stood upon a platform also of stone, and once more the chill night air fanned their brows. So dense was the gloom that Leonard could tell nothing of the place where they might be, but from far beneath them rose a hissing sound as of seething water, and combined with it another sound of faint murmuring, as though thousands of people whispered each to each. Also from time to time he heard a rustling like that of a forest when a gentle wind stirs its leaves, or the rustling of the robes of innumerable women. This sense of the presence of hidden waters and of an unseen multitude was strange and terrifying in the extreme. It was as though, without perceiving them, their human faculties suddenly became aware of the spirits of the unnumbered dead, thronging, watching, following, there, but intangible, speaking without words, touching without hands. Leonard was tempted to cry aloud, so great was the strain upon his nerves, which were usually strong enough, nor was he alone in this desire. Presently a sound arose from below him as of some person in hysterics, and he heard a priest command silence in a fierce voice. The sobbing and laughter went on till it culminated in a shrill scream. 
after the scream came the thought of a blow, a heavy fall, a groan, and once again the invisible multitudes whispered and rustled. Someone has been killed, muttered Francisco in Leonard's ear. Who is it, I wonder? Leonard shuddered, but made no answer, for a great hand was placed upon his mouth in warning. At length the portentous silence was broken, and a voice spoke, the voice of Nam the priest. In the silence all that he uttered could be heard plainly, but his words came from far away, and the sound of them was still and small. This was what he said as Juana told it to them after the ceremony. Hear me, ye children of the snake, ye ancient people of the mist. Hearken to me, Nam the priest of the snake. Many a generation gone in the beginning of time. So runs the legend. The mother goddess whom we worship from of old descended from heaven and came hither to us. And with her came the snake, her child. While she tarried in the land, the crime of crimes was wrought. The darkness slew the daylight, and she passed hence. We know not how or where. And from that hour the land has been a land of mist, and its people have wandered in the mist. For he whose name is darkness has ruled over them, answering their prayers with death. But this doom was on the snake, that because of his wickedness he must put off the flesh of men and descend into the holy place of waters where, as we and our fathers have known, his symbol dwells eternally taking tribute of the lives of men. Yet, ere that crime was wrought, the mother gave a word of promise to her people. Now that I am about to die at the hands of him I bore, for it is so fated, she said. But not for ever do I leave you, and not for ever shall the snake be punished by putting off the flesh of men. Many generations shall go by, and we will return again and rule over you, and the veil of mist shall be lifted from your land, and ye shall be great in the earth. Till then, choose your kings and let them govern you. Moreover, forget not my worship, and see to it that throughout the ages the altar of the snake is wet with blood, and that he lacks not the food he loves. And I will give you a sign by which we shall be known when at length the fate is accomplished and the hour of forgiveness is at hand. As a fair maid will I come again, a maid lovely and white. But because of his sin the snake shall appear in the shape of that which sits within your temple, and his hue shall be black, and his face hideous. Out of the earth will we arise, and we will call to you, and ye shall know us, and you will tell us our holy names that shall not be spoken aloud from this hour to that hour of our coming. But beware, lest ye be deceived, and false gods set themselves up among you, for then shall the last evil fall upon you, and the sun shall hide his face." Thus, children of the mist, did the mother speak to him who was her priest in the long ago, and he graved her words with iron on the stone of that whereon I stand. But none can read that writing, for its secret is lost to us, though the prophecy remains. And now the time is full, and it has been given to me his successor in my old age to see the fulfillment of the saying. The time is full. And this night the promise of the past is accomplished for people of the mist. The immortal gods whose name are holy have appeared to rule their children. Yesterday they came, ye saw them, and in your ears they called aloud the sacred names. As a maiden fair and white, and as a dwarf black and hideous, have they come. And Akka is the name of the maiden, and Jal is the name of the dwarf. He ceased, and his voice died away in the echoes of the great place. Once again there was silence, broken only by the seething sound of waters and the indefinable murmur of an unseen throng beneath. Leonard stood a while, then edged himself gently forward with the design of discovering where and upon what they were standing. 
His curiosity was soon met with a violent check, for before he had gone a yard he felt that his right foot was dangling in space, and it was only by a strong effort that he prevented himself from falling, whither he knew not. Recovering his balance, he shuffled himself back again to the side of Francisco and whispered a warning to him not to move if he valued his life. As Leonard spoke, he noticed that the blackness of the night was turning gray with the light of the unrisen moon. Already her rays, striking upwards, brightened the sky above and the mountains behind, and from them fell a pale reflection which grew gradually stronger and clearer. Now he could discover that close upon him to the left a black mass towered high into the air, and that far beneath him gleamed something like the foam on broken water. For a time he watched this water, or whatever it might be, until a smothered exclamation from Francisco caused him to look up again. As he looked, the edge of the moon rose above the temple wall, and by slow degrees a wonderful sight was revealed to him. Not until the moon was fully visible did he see everything, and to describe all as he discovered it piecemeal would be difficult. This was what Leonard saw at length. Before him and underneath him lay a vast and roofless building open to the east, covering some two acres of ground and surrounded by titanic walls, fifty feet or more in height. This building was shaped like a Roman amphitheater, but with the exception of the space immediately below him, its area was filled with stone seats, and round its wide circumference stone seats rose tier on tier. These were all occupied by men and women in the hundreds, and except at the further end, scarcely a place was empty. At the western extremity of the temple, a huge statue towered seventy or eighty feet into the air, hewn to all appearance from a mass of living rock. Behind this colossus, and not more than a hundred paces from it, the sheer mountain rose, precipice upon precipice, to the foot of a white peak clad in eternal snow. It was the peak that they had seen from the plain when the mist lifted, and the statue was the dark mass beneath it which had excited their curiosity. This fearful colossus was fashioned to the shape of a huge dwarf of hideous countenance, seated with bent arms outstretched in a forward direction, and palms turned upward, as though to bear the weight of the sky. The statue stood, or rather sat, upon a platform of rock, and not more than four paces from its base, so that the outstretched hands and slightly bowed head overhung it, indeed, was a circular gulf measuring perhaps thirty yards across, in which seething waters raged and boiled. Whence they came and whither they went, it was impossible to see, but Leonard discovered afterwards that here was the source of the river which they had followed for so many days." Escaping from the gulf by underground passages that it had hollowed for itself through the solid rock, the two branches of the torrent passed round the walls of the town to unite again in the plain below. How the pool itself was supplied, Leonard was destined to learn in after days. Between the steep polished sides of the rock basin and the feet of the statue was placed an altar or sacrificial stone. Here on this ledge, which covered an area no greater than that of a small room, and in front of the altar stood a man bound, in whom Leonard recognized Ulfan the king, while on either side of him were priests, naked to the waist, and armed with knives. Behind them again stood the little band of settlement men, trembling with terror. Nor were their fears groundless, for there among them lay one of their number dead. This was the man whose nerve had broken down, who shrieked aloud in the darkness, and in reward had been smitten into everlasting silence. All this Leonard saw by degrees, but the first thing that he saw has not yet been told. Long before the brilliant rays of the moon lit the amphitheater, they struck upon the huge head of the dwarf idol, and there on this giddy perch, some seventy feet from the ground, and nearly a hundred above the level of the pool of seething water, sat Juana herself, enthroned in an ivory chair. She had been divested of her black cloak, and was clad in the robe of snowy linen cut low upon her breast, and fastened round her waist with a girdle. 
Her dark hair flowed about her shoulders. In either hand she held the lilies, white and red, and upon her head glowed the ruby like a blood-red star. She sat quite still, her eyes set wide in horror, and first the moonlight gleamed upon the gem bound to her forehead. Next it showed the pale and lovely face beneath, then her snowy arms and breast, the whiteness of her robes, and the hideous demon head whereon her throne was fixed. No spirit could have seemed more beautiful than this woman set thus on high in that dark place of blood and fear. Indeed, in the unearthly light, she looked like a spirit, the spirit of beauty triumphing over the hideousness of hell, the angel of light trampling the devil and his works. It was not wonderful that this fierce and barbarous people sighed like reeds before the wind when her loveliness dawned upon them, made ethereal by the moon, or that thenceforth Leonard could never think of her quite as he thought of any other woman. Under such conditions, most well-favored women would have appeared beautiful. Juana did more. She seemed divine. As the light grew downward and the shadows thinned before it, Leonard followed with his eyes, and presently he discovered Otter. The dwarf, naked except for his girdle and the fringe upon his head, was also enthroned, holding the ivory scepter in his hand, but in a seat of ebony placed upon the knees of the colossus, nearly forty feet below Juana. Then Leonard turned to consider Francisco's position and his own, and found it terrible enough. Indeed, the moment that he discovered it was nigh to being his last. In company with two priests of the snake, they were standing on the palm of the right hand of the idol that formed a little platform some six feet square, which they had won in darkness through a tunnel hewn in the arm of stone. There they stood unprotected by any railing or support, and before them and on either side of them was a sheer drop of some ninety feet to the water beneath, or of fifty to the rock of the platform. Leonard saw, and for a moment turned faint and dizzy. Then, setting the butt of his rifle onto the stone, he leaned upon the barrel till his brain cleared. It was well for him that he had not known what lay beneath when he thrust his feet into vacancy, for then his senses might have failed him. Suddenly he remembered Francisco, and opened his eyes which he had closed to shut out the sight of the yawning gulf beneath. It was not too soon. The priest had seen also, and consciousness was deserting him. Even as Leonard turned, his knees gave way, and he sank forward and downward. Quick as thought, Leonard stretched out his right hand and caught Francisco by the robe he wore. Then, resting his weight upon the rifle, he strained at the priest's falling body with all his force in such a manner that its direction was turned, and it fell sideways upon the platform, not downward into space. Leonard dragged at him again and thrust him into the mouth of the little tunnel through which they had reached this dreadful eminence where he lay quiet and safe, lost in blessed insensibility. All this took place in a few seconds. The two priests of the snake, who stood by them as calmly as though their feet were still on the solid earth, saw, but made no movement. Only Leonard thought that they smiled grimly, and a horrible fear struck his heart like a breath of ice. What if they waited a signal to cast him down? It might well be so. Already he had seen enough of their rites to enable him to guess that theirs was a religion of blood and human sacrifice. He shivered and again turned faint, so faint indeed that he did not dare to keep his feet, but sank into a sitting posture, resting his back against the stone of the idol's thumb. Chapter 23 How Juana Conquered Nam Still the silence endured, and still the moonlight grew, creeping lower and lower till it shone upon the face of the seething waters, and except in the immediate shadow of the walls, all the amphitheater was full of it. Then the voice of Nam spoke again from far away, and Leonard looked to see whence he spoke. Now he saw. Nam, attended by three priests, was perched like an eagle on the left palm of the Colossus, and from this dizzy platform he addressed the multitude. 
Looking across the breast of the statue, Leonard could just see the outstretched arm in the fierce face of the high priest as he glared down upon the people. Hearken, ye dwellers in the mist, children of the snake, ye have seen your ancient gods, your father and your mother come back to rule you and to lead you on through war to peace, to wealth, to power, and to glory. Ye see them now by that light, and in that place wherein only it is lawful that ye should look upon them. Say, do ye believe, and do ye accept them? Answer, every one of you, answer with your voice. Then a mighty roar of sound went up from the gathered thousands, a roar that shaped itself into the words, We believe and we accept. It is well, said Nam, when the tumult had died away. Hearken, ye gods, O Akka and O Jal. Bend down your ears and deign to hearken to your priest and servant speaking in the name of your children, the people of the mist. Be ye kings to reign over us. Accept the power and the sacrifice and sit in the place of kings. We give you rule through all the land. The life of every dweller in the land is yours. Yours are their cattle and their goats, their city and their armies. For you the altars shall run red. The cry of the victim shall be music in your ears. Ye shall look upon him who long ago ye set to guard the secret awful place, and he shall crawl beneath your feet. As ye ruled our fathers, so ye shall rule us, according to the customs which ye laid down forever. Glory be to you, O Akka, and to you, O Jal, immortal kings forevermore. And in a shout that rent the skies, the great audience echoed, Glory be to you, O Akka, and to you, O Jal, immortal kings forevermore. Then Nam spoke again, saying, Bring forth the virgin, that fair maid who is destined to the snake, that he may look upon her and accept her as his wife. Bring her forth also, who twelve months gone was vowed in marriage to the shape of stone, that she may bid her lord farewell. As he spoke, there was a stir behind the idol, and presently from each side of it a woman was led forward by two priests, onto the little space of rock between its feet and the edge of the gulf, and placed one to the right of the altar and one to the left. Both these women were tall and lovely, with the dark and somewhat terrifying beauty of the people of the mist, but there the resemblance between them ended. She to the right was naked except for a girdle of snakeskin and the covering of her abundant hair, which was crowned with a wreath of red lilies, similar to the flowers that the priests had given to Juana. She to the left, on the contrary, was clothed in a black robe round which was broidered the shape of a blood-red snake, whose head rested upon her breast. Leonard noticed that the appearance of this woman was that of extreme terror, for she shrank and trembled, whereas that of the flower-crowned bride was jubilant and even haughty. For a moment the two women stood still, while the people gazed at them. Then at a signal from Nam, she who was crowned with flowers was led before the altar, and thrice she bowed the knee to the idol, or rather to Otter who sat upon it. Now all eyes were fixed on the dwarf, who stared at the girl but made no sign which was not wonderful, seeing that he had no inkling of the meaning of the ceremony. As it chanced, he could not have acted more wisely, at least in the interests of the bride, for here, as elsewhere, silence was held to give consent. "'Behold, the god accepts,' cried Nam. "'The beauty of the maid is pleasing in his eyes. Stand aside, Saga the Blessed, that the people may look upon you and know you,' Hail to you, wife of the snake! Smiling triumphantly, the girl moved back to her place by the altar and turned her proud face to the people. Then the multitude shouted, 
Hail to you, bride of the snake! Hail to you, the blessed chosen of the god! While the tumult still lasted, the woman who was clad in the black robe was led forward, and when it had died away, she also made her obeisance before the idol. Away with her, that she may seek her lord in his own place, cried Nam. Away with her, her day is done, echoed the multitude. Then, before Juana could interfere, before she could even speak, for be it remembered, she alone understood all that was said, the two priests who guarded the doomed woman rent the robe from her, and with one swing of their strong arms hurled her backwards far into the pool of seething waters. She fell with a shriek and lay floating on their surface, flung this way and that by the eddy of the whirlpool, just where the moonlight beat most brightly. All who could of the multitude bent forward to see her end, and overcome with a fearful fascination, Leonard threw himself on his face, and craning his head over the stone of the idol's hand, watched also, for the girl's struggling shape was almost immediately beneath him. Another minute, and he would have foregone the hope of winning the treasure which he had come so far to seek, not to have yielded to the impulse." For as he stared, the waters between the feet of the idol were as agitated as a pond is agitated by the rush of a pike when he dashes at his prey. Then for an instant, the light gleamed upon a dull, enormous shape, and suddenly the head of a crocodile reared itself out of the pool. The head of a crocodile, but of such a crocodile as he had never heard of or dreamed of, for this head alone was broader than the breast of the biggest man. Its dull eyes were the size of a man's fist. Its yellow fangs were like the teeth of a lion, and from its lower jaw hung tentacles or lumps of white flesh, which at that distance gave it the appearance of being bearded like a goat. Also the skin of this huge reptile, which could not have measured less than fifty feet in length by four feet in depth, was here and there corroded into rusty excrescences, as though some fungus or lichen had grown upon it like gray moss on an ancient wall. Indeed, its appearance seemed to point to extreme antiquity. Footnote. Crocodiles are proverbially long-lived, but Leonard could never discover the age of this particular reptile. On inquiry, he was able to trace it back for three hundred years, and tradition said it had always dwelt among the people of the mist from the beginning of time. At least it was very old, and under the name of the snake had been an object of worship for many generations. How it came among the people of the mist is difficult to say, for no other specimen appeared to exist in the country. Perhaps it was captured in some distant age, and placed in the cave by the priests, to figure as an incarnation of the snake that was the object of their worship. End footnote. Hearing the disturbance in the water, the reptile had emerged from the cave where it dwelt beneath the feet of the idol, to seek its accustomed food which consisted of the human victims that were cast to it at certain intervals. It reared its hideous head and glared round. Then, of a sudden, the monster and the victim vanished together into the depths. Sick with horror, Leonard drew himself back into a sitting posture and glanced up at Juana. She was crouched in her ivory chair, overcome, and her eyes were closed, either through faintness or to shut out the sight of dread. Then he looked down at Otter. The dwarf, staring fixedly at the water, sat still as the stone effigy that supported him. Evidently, in all his varied experience, he had seen no such thing as this. "'The snake has accepted the sacrifice!' cried Nam again. "'The snake has taken her, who was his bride, to dwell with him in his holy house. Let the offerings be completed, for this is but the first fruit.' Take Ulfan, who was king, and offer him up. Cast down the white slaves of the mother and offer them up. Seize the slaves who stood before her in the plain and offer them up. Lead forth the captives and offer them up. 
Let the sacrifice of the crowning of kings be accomplished according to custom, that the God whose name is Jal may be appeased, that he may listen to the pleadings of the mother, that the sun may shine upon us, that fruitfulness may fill the land and peace be within its gates. Thus he cried while Leonard felt his blood turn cold and his hair rise upon his head, for though he could not understand the words, he guessed their purport, and his instinct told him that a great danger threatened them. He looked at the two priests who stood by, and they glared hungrily on him in answer. Then his courage came back to him. At least he had his rifle and would fight for his life. It must go hard if he could not put a bullet through one or both of them before they got a hold of him. Meanwhile, the priests below had seized the king, Olfan, whose giant form they were dragging toward the stone of sacrifice. But of a sudden, for the first time, Juana spoke, and a deep silence fell upon the temple and all within it. Hearken, people of the mist, she said and her voice falling from that great height seemed small and far away, although so clear that every word was audible in the stillness of the night. Hear me, people of the mist, and ye, priests of the snake. Akka is come again, and Jal is come again, and ye have given them back their rule after many generations, and in their hands lies the life of every one of you. As old tradition told of them, so they are, the mother and the child, and the one is clothed with beauty, the symbol of life and of the fruitful earth, and the other is black and hideous, the symbol of death and the evil that walks upon the earth. And ye would do sacrifice to Jal that he may be appeased according to the ancient law, and listen to the pleading of the mother that fruitfulness may fill the land. Not so shall Jal be appeased, and not because of the sacrifice of men shall Akka plead with him that prosperity may reign in the land. Behold, the old law is done away, and we give you a new law. Now is the hour of reconciliation. Now life and death walk hand in hand, and the hearts of Akka and Jal have grown gentle through the ages, and they no longer crave the blood of men as an offering to their majesty. Henceforth ye shall bring them fruits and flowers, and not the lives of men. See, in my hand I hold winter lilies, red and white, blood-red they are, and white as snow. Now the red flower, token of sacrifice and slaughter, I crush and cast away, but the white bloom of love and peace I set upon my breast. It is done, gone is the old law. See, it falls into the place of the snake, its home, but the new law blossoms above my heart and in it. Shall it not be so, my children, people of the mist? Will ye not accept my mercy and my love? The multitude watched the red bloom as bruised and broken through the light and through the shadow. They fell slowly to the seething surface of the pool. Then it looked up like one man and saw the white lily set upon Juana's whiter breast. They saw, and moved by a common impulse, they rose with a sound like the rush of the wind and shouted, Gone is the day of blood and sacrifice. Come is the day of peace. We thank you, mother, and we take your mercy and your love. Then they were silent, and again there was a sound like that of the wind as all their thousands sank back to the seats of stone. Now Nam spoke again in a voice of fury that rang through the still air like a clarion. What is this that my ears hear? he cried. Are ye mad, O ye dwellers in the mist? Or does the mother speak with a charmed voice? Shall the ancient worship be changed in an hour? Nay, not the gods themselves can alter their own worship. Slay on, ye priests, slay on, or ye yourselves shall die the dreadful death. The priests below heard, and seizing the struggling king, they cast him with difficulty down upon the stone. Leonard, Leonard, cried Juana in English, addressing him for the first time by his Christian name, as even then he noticed, 
but looking straight before her that none might guess to whom she spoke. These priests are going to kill you and all of us except Otter and myself. If you can, when you see me point with my hand, shoot that man who is about to sacrifice the king. Make no answer. Leonard heard and understood all. Resting his back firmly against the thumb of the statue, he shifted his position a little so that the group below him came within his line of sight and waited watching Juana, who now was speaking again in the language of the people of the mist. "'This I promise you, ministers of blood,' she said. "'If ye obey me not, ye shall indeed die the dreadful death, the death unknown. Hearken, my servant, who are named Deliverer,' and she looked down upon Leonard. "'And do my bidding. If one of these shall dare to lift his hand against yonder man, slay him as swiftly as you know how. Smite on, screamed Nam. Smite on and fear not. Most of the priests drew back affrighted, but one ruffian lifted his knife, and at that moment Juana pointed with her hand. Then Leonard, stepping forward, covered the priest's great breast with his rifle as surely as the uncertain light would allow. Unconscious of his danger, the executioner muttered an invocation. Now the knife was about to fall upon the throat of Ulfan, when fire and smoke sprang out far above him. The rifle rang and shot through the heart. The priest leaped high into the air and fell dead. Terror seized the witnesses of this unaccustomed and to them most awful sight. Did God speak with flame and thunder? One cried, and death is in the flame. Silence, dogs, screamed Nam. Ye are bewitched. Ho, ye that stand on high, cast down the wizard who is named Deliverer, and let us see who will deliver him from death upon the stone. Then one of the guards who stood by him made a movement to grasp Leonard and throw him down, but the other was terrified and could not stir. The first man stretched out his arm, but before it so much as touched its aim, he himself was dead. Foreseeing his purpose, Leonard had lifted his rifle, and once more its report rang through the temple. Suddenly the priest threw his arms wide, then fell backwards, and with a mighty rush dived into sheer space to crash lifeless on the stone floor below, where he lay, his head and hands hanging over the edge of the pool. Now, for the first time, Otter's emotions overcame him. He stood up on the knees of the dwarf, and shaking the scepter in his hand, he pointed with it to the dead man on the paving below, at the same time crying in stentorian tones, "'Well done, boss, well done. Now tumble the old one yonder off his perch, for I weary of his howlings.' This speech of Otter's produced even a greater effect on the spectators, if that were possible, than the mysterious death of the priests, that he whose name was Silence should cry aloud in a strange tongue of which they understood no single word, was a dread and ominous thing that showed his anger to be deep. But Leonard took no heed. He was too engaged in covering the second guard with the barrel of his repeater. This man, however, had no liking for such a dreadful death. Swiftly he flung himself onto his knees, imploring Leonard to spare him in humble accents and with gestures that spoke more plainly than his words. Taking advantage of the pause, again Juana cried aloud, Ye see, people of the mist, I make no idle threats. Where are they now, the disobedient ones? The tongue of flame has licked them, and they are dead. And as they have perished, so shall all perish who dare to gainsay my word, or the word of Jal. Ye know us for gods, and ye have crowned us kings, and gods and kings we are indeed. Yet fear not, for on the rebellious only shall our anger fall. Answer you, Nam. Will you do our bidding, or will you die also as your servants died? Nam glanced around desperately. He looked down on the multitude and found no help there. Long had they cowered beneath him. Now hope was born in their breaths, and in the presence of a power greater than his, if only for a little while, they broke his yoke and the yoke of their red superstitions. He looked at the company of priests. 
Their heart was out of them. They were huddled together like knots of frightened sheep, staring at the corpses of their two companions. Then he bethought him of Otter. Surely there was refuge in the god of blood and evil. And he cried to him, The mother has spoken, but the mother is not the child. Say, O Jal, what is your command? Otter made no answer, because he did not understand. But Juana replied swiftly, I am the mouth of Jal, as Jal is my hand. When I speak, I speak the words of Jal. Do his bidding and mine, or die, you disobedient servant. This was the end of it. Nam was beaten. For the first time in his life he must own a master, and that master the gods whom he himself had discovered and proclaimed. So be it, he said suddenly. The old order passes, and the new order comes. So be it. Let your will be done, O Akka and O Jal. I have striven for your glory. I have fed your altars, and ye threaten me with death and put away my gift. Priests, set free that man who was king. People, have your way. Forget your ancient paths. Pluck the white flower of peace. And perish. I have said... So he spoke from on high, shaking his clenched fists above his hoary head, and was gone. Then the executioners unbound the limbs of the ex-king, and he rose from the stone of death. Ulfan, cried Juana from on high, you that were the king, we who have taken your kingship give you life and liberty and honor. See that in reward you serve us well lest again you should lie upon that bed of stone. Do you swear fealty to us? For ever and for ever I swear it by your holy heads, answered Olfan. It is well. Now under us once more we give you command of the armies of this people, our children. Summon your captains and your soldiers. Bid those that brought us hither lead us back whence we came, and there set guards about us, so that none trouble us. For you are people, for this time fare you well. Go in peace to dwell in peace beneath the shadow of our strength. Holy moly! They escaped by the skin of their teeth, and Juana's quick thinking and Leonard's quick reflexes. Wow, couldn't you just see that? The gigantic scale of everything. It was like watching an old black and white movie to me. I loved it. And we all know Nam is not going to give in that easily, right? He is going to cause some trouble. And how about Soa? Oh, I, I don't think I'll come. I think I'll just let you guys go. See you later. I don't trust her as far as I can throw her, which is probably how we're meant to feel. Boy, the adventure just keeps going. So now what? I can't really tell you because this thing just twists and turns like crazy. We will just discover it together. I do want to mention also in terms of classics that the Classic Tales podcast has begun reading Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. I really love this story. And of course, B.J. Harrison is one of the best to read ever. He's got the first two parts out, so it hasn't been going on for very long. And if you want something else to listen to, I highly recommend it. Also, in other podcast news, Scott and I will be discussing I Confess this week at A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. This is a lesser-known Hitchcock gem, and I had vaguely heard of it, but not watched it. Never really felt like, you know, I needed to seek it out, so this is Scott's choice. Wow, am I glad he chose it. It is really an amazing movie more serious than a lot of Hitchcock's movies, but wow, really great. So that will be out there if you want to hear it. And this next weekend, I'm going to be discussing with the SFF Audio guys a mystery and science fiction book. 
The Last Policeman by Ben H. Winters. I will not tell you more than that except to say that I read it once as a book. I'm listening now as an audiobook. I find it hard to choose which way I would tell you to read it. It's compelling both ways, which means it's a good story. So that's highly recommended. And I do just want to mention about A Good Story is Hard to Find that it's better than I thought. (laughs) And I say this because I never go back and listen to them once I've listened to them right after we've recorded just to see if there's anything that needs to be cut out. Scott does the editing, but he'll send them to me and I'll listen and then we'll say, oh, that wasn't bad, you know, and boy, we could have done this better. And then I never listen again. So I have a friend at the movie group Assisted Living Place. When we were talking, she got interested in A Good Story is Hard to Find, and she doesn't have a computer at her place. So I was burning a couple episodes to CDs, and when I was picking them out, I was having to pick out ones that were short enough to fit on a CD and all that sort of thing. But I listened to them first to get an idea of what I was giving her. And I listened to the Inception episode, which I think is number 16. And I listened to The Case of the Missing Servant, which is, I think, episode 63. Anyway, a book and a movie to give her a fair idea. And as I was listening, because I really didn't remember these conversations or very much of them, I was getting more and more engrossed in listening. And so I realized this sounds as if I'm blowing my own horn and bragging, but it was really a wonderful surprise to find that what we were discussing had value past (laughs) just our discussion to us. And I know we have friends who listen and various people will say thank you for it, but I felt like it was something I could really be proud of and recommend to people even more heartily now than I did before. So if you have been interested, we do talk about spoilers, but give it a try. Find something that you don't mind hearing about the spoilers for, or that you've, of course, read or watched before, and see what you think. I'd be curious to hear, for one thing. But Like I say, it was a welcome surprise to find out that I was right to feel proud of it. Now, what's going on besides bragging about other things I do? Hmm. Well, I just had a birthday yesterday, and it was a wonderful day. We went to a Middle Eastern restaurant near here called Cedars. I think, really, when I think of it, I think of Cedars of Lebanon. I'm not sure if that's what it's named after, but it's really top rate. Oh my gosh, so good. And they were getting ready to have a huge graduation party for a family. So the main dining room was blocked off because it was a Sunday night. So we ate in a little side restaurant spot. But as we were leaving, it was so much fun to see the tables had all these white tablecloths on them. It's not a really formal place usually. And, um, I'm assuming one of the family members had gone around and scattered these little jewel looking uh, hard candies that were wrapped in foil all over the table. So it looked really festive. And as the family members were starting to gather, they were all looking so happy and proud. And it just made me feel good seeing that big celebration happening while our little celebration was happening. And That's not why I brought it up. But the reason I brought it up was because I am cracking up. I have what I've started to call my superpower. It's a very annoying superpower. (laughs) If, If I was a superhero, it would be one of the most useless superpowers ever. But I am really excellent at guessing gifts people are giving me. Now, it's an annoying superpower because I don't want to know what they're giving me. I want a complete surprise. This is something that Tom discovered when we were engaged and it was Christmas and I helped move a box that was wrapped for me under the tree to make room for something. And I went, oh my gosh, that feels like a KitchenAid. And he just looked at me and went, I can't believe you said that. How could you possibly know that? I don't know. It's a superpower. There's no explaining these things. But as time has gone by, nobody from my family anymore will give me a hint will let me pick up a box, will let me give them a box to put anything in. 
I can guess all too well. And so yesterday we were talking with Rose on Skype and she was saying that she had a gift that as soon as she saw it, she thought of me and she said, I can't say one more thing because you will use your superpower and guess. And I was like, Ooh, I'm very excited about this. Tom brought out all the wrapped gifts and there was a very long, narrow, triangular shaped gift. And I looked at it and thought, ah, a poster. Oh, maybe it's a poster of Aliens, one of my favorite movies that I had been looking at. We have a small poster of it in our back room where our TV is. And I had thought, wow, that really needs to be bigger. It just doesn't stand out enough. And so I guess that's why I thought of that. And I said, is that Rose's gift? And Tom said, no, no, this is her gift here. And I said, oh, okay. Because I looked at it and I thought, oh, that must be a movie poster. That must be what Rose gave me. And he was like, no, no, no. So I opened hers and sure enough, it is a movie poster, but it's been packed flat and it's small. It's more like lobby card size. And it's of the original King Kong, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. And so much so that when Tom and I were talking to Rose on Skype, I was talking about the most recent Godzilla movie and saying that the friend who had recommended it to me loves Godzilla movies. And I said, the way I love King Kong movies. And I said, well, wait, not King Kong movies, just the original. That's the best movie. I don't know how both of them didn't just crack up laughing right then. Since that's what Rose was giving me. But then I opened the triangular box and it is indeed a full size lobby movie poster of Aliens. And I went, oh my gosh, this is what I thought Rose gave me. And Tom's like, well, you just got one little wrinkle wrong. It was me. Uh, And Hannah's like, damn those superpowers of yours. They're so hard to get around. So that cracked me up. So that's why I bored you with that long story. (laughs) But that's what's happening in my life. Well, if you have any stories you'd like to tell me, you can find me at hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. That's where you'll find links to what I've mentioned. I also can be reached in email, of course, julie at glyphnet.com, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T.com. And of course, I'm on iTunes where I'd love a review. And I guess that's all. That's enough places to reach me. I do want to say, of course, whether you come to comment or not, I appreciate you listening. I have a great time reading this stuff out loud. I wouldn't read it out loud if there was nobody listening. I really appreciate you letting me have this much fun. Thanks so much for coming by. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.